The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. Hello. In 1927, five years after that miraculous year of modernism, 1922, when both Ulysses and The Wasteland were published, novelist E.M. Forster explained the difference between story and plot. A plot is a narrative of events, he said, with an emphasis on causality. The king died and then the queen died is a story. But the king died and then the queen died of grief is a plot. Every novelist knows the draw of a good plot. It's the and then what happened and then what happened that takes readers from page to page. Aristotle put it at the top of his list of key components of tragedy. The most important, he said, character was secondary, but the two are closely connected. Character is plot, according to Aristotle, and plot is character revealed in action. Sounds good. And in some ways, you can start with Greek tragedy and trace it all the way through novelists right to the present. We like plots. Authors like them. Readers like them. They work. And yet... And yet, great artists like to get under the hood and take things apart, too. They want to be new. They want a surprise. They want to question. They want to challenge. Maybe they want to work against convention, or maybe they have different goals altogether. If anyone wanted to blow things up, it was the modernists. You see it in Joyce and Eliot, and in music, you have Stravinsky, in painting, Picasso. And so we have this curious example Plots and novels, sure, that's one thing, but plots and modernist novels, that's something else altogether. Virginia Woolf captured it in a word, calling it the tyranny of plot. Why did modernists think that, and what did they do about it? Enter the scholars to help us sort this out. We talked to one such scholar, Professor Pardis Debashi, author of the book Losing the Plot, Film and Feeling in the Modern Novel, today on The History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the podcast. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for joining me today. I'm looking forward to this one, so let's get right to it. And then we'll have a My Last Book with, well... Why don't we include a novelist, Booker Prize winning Anne Enright. We'll hear what she chose as the last book she will ever read. But first, Professor Pardis Tabashi, expert in the works of William Faulkner and Nella Larson and Juna Barnes, who was here to tell us all about the curious relationship that modernists had with plot. Okay, joining me now is Pardis Tabashi. Professor of Literatures in English and Film Studies at Bryn Mawr College. She's also co-editor of the New William Faulkner Studies and the Visualities Forum on Modernism slash Modernity Print Plus. She's here today to discuss her book, Losing the Plot, Film and Feeling in the Modern Novel. Pardis Debashi, welcome to the History of Literature. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be talking to you. So let's start where your book does with the story of two novelists, Emily Coleman and Juna Barnes. And I'll give a few quotes here. They were writing letters. Emily had written a book. Emily Coleman had written a book. And she was saying, I'm very anxious for you to see this book. But Juna, it has a plot. 
and other <laughs> letters express this anxiety as well, that her book had story in it. She said, I'm afraid you won't like it. I like to tell a story. I just can't help it. What was the source of Emily Coleman's anxiety? That's a great question. Well, I think there's a, a kind of more local answer and a broader answer. The more local answer is that Emily Coleman was Juna Barnes's unofficial editor for her for Barnes's book in progress, Nightwood, mm. which would go on to become, you know, a major contribution to the high modernist movement. Yeah, right. And so she, she was working, I mean, the Barnes's official editor would actually be T.S. Eliot, but Coleman was working on the book with Barnes leading up to submitting it to Eliot. So she was very intimately familiar with the ways that Nightwood was really sort of challenging 19th century conventions of storytelling. And for anybody who's read Nightwood, they know that um, not only is the story like deeply fragmented in terms of the form of the novel, but also the way that it approaches character is very, very different than the way that you would sort of the way that you encounter characters in, let's say, like more mainstream Victorian 19th century novels. For Barnes, her characters are, she's really interested in sort of accentuating the artificiality of literary character. And I and many other scholars have suggested the ways that she sort of approaches characters as kind of literary surfaces rather than sort of entities with psychological depth. That's not to say we don't sort of feel the presence of the characters or that they're not sort of emotional beings. It's rather that Coleman just knew how much Barnes was interested in challenging these 19th century conventions. And so here she was writing this novel, you know, with with a plot and characters in it. And she's like, oh, my God, Juna, please don't judge me. Yeah. <laughs> I'm writing this book that, you know, has plot and characters. And I know how you feel about that. So, but she was, but Coleman also really wanted Juna's opinion. So I thought that that was a very sweet interaction. Right. So it's interesting that you brought up character because I was planning to get there a little bit later, but maybe we'll just jump ahead and, and talk about that too. I was thinking of Aristotle's famous statement that plot was character revealed by action. And I was thinking, well, okay, these it's connected, that any kind of turning away from conventional plot might also be, character might be kind of uh, collateral damage if you're getting away from plot. How do you get character in there? And I thought, well, the modernists probably just did it all through interior monologue and, and through stream of consciousness or something. They would build a character like that without necessarily having a lot of plot have to do something with character. But what you've just said makes me think that, that Juna Barnes was up to something even different and yeah. uh, that character, maybe we shouldn't twin the two together. We should talk yeah. about them separately. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, you're absolutely not wrong in the sense that there's a sort of like very prominent strain of modernist fiction, particularly William Faulkner is a really good example of this. Joyce is a good example of this. Virginia Woolf, obviously, is an excellent example of the ways that modernist authors are turning away from action as the sort of primary vehicle of fleshing out character and turning instead toward the sort of labyrinthine pathways of human consciousness in the form, obviously, of stream of consciousness narration. But then, 
you know, and in, in other instances, you get different examples of different ways to sort of approach character that are not necessarily based in a delving into what what critic Georg Lukacs called the sort of the bad infinity of human consciousness. And instead toward, I mean, in, in the case of Barnes, it is a turn toward a kind of what we might call like a, a surfacing of literary character to the surface of the text. And, and what I mean by that is Barnes's characters are, we don't get their kind of internal psychological states. What we get instead are, in many cases, in the case of Nightwood, the, the character of the Dr. Matthew O'Connor, these long monologues of just talk, 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 talk. And they're, who the doctor is and how he sort of moves through the world becomes evident as we kind of wade through these pages and pages of what can often feel like nonsensical talk, but instead is, I mean, it's not nonsense. It's a kind of barn playing with language. And sort of the image of the doctor that emerges is as a kind of vehicle of language, which is very different than a character like Quentin Compson in Faulkner's Sound and the Fury, who does sort of come to us through stream of consciousness narration, where we are kind of given access to him through his endless torrents of thought. So I think it's different in different cases. And then, of course, there are streams of modernism in which actions do take place, and we do learn things about characters through the actions that they take. I think I always think of Kafka in this. Kafka is an example of a writer whose modernism comes through in a very, very different sense. In a certain sense, it comes through in a realist way, in the sense that you you learn who Gregor is in, the, in Metamorphosis, for instance, through the things that he does, in addition to the things that he thinks, but through the things that he does. And so, but that just means that Kafka's modernism sort of emerges in a different way and along a different axis than through the kind of dialectical relationship between action and character. Right. So just talking about plot and story, why did so many of the modernists, you've given examples, uh, Wolf and Joyce and Faulkner and Barnes, why did so many of them turn away from plot as it would have been you know, familiar to someone like Charles Dickens. What was it? Was it viewed as too restrictive or too sort of used up that the previous literature had kind of exhausted the the possibilities of plot, and this was about kind of trying to clean house in literature, so to speak? Or was it not reflective of the age they lived in? Or what was it about plot that made them not want to follow a lot of their predecessors? Yeah, I, I love the way that you that cleaning house. Um, I, I think that, yes, there were, there were many reasons why modernists thought that sort of plot was one of, if not the primary kind of axes along which to revolutionize literature and maybe the novel in particular. And that had a lot to do with the ways that they associated plot and when I say plot, I should say sort of like teleological plot bent toward formal closure and reconciliation. There are many reasons why they associated this with a kind of unwanted inheritance or like a kind of unwanted restriction that they wanted to alleviate. 
themselves from. And one simply has to do with the kind of immersive powers of storytelling. So, for example, I say in the book that, you know, it's not that we don't get immersed in modernist novels, although I do think that we get immersed to a far lesser degree. I don't think immersion is the is the kind of like primary kind of like receptive mode that we experience when reading Ulysses, for instance, or The Waves by Virginia Woolf. But you get immersed in, in a modernist novel in a very different way or to a far lesser degree than you do in a novel like Oliver Twist or Great Expectations mm. or even Middlemarch by George Eliot. And for many of the modernists and early modernist theorists, like folks like Adorno, narrative immersion was a kind of, let's say, like social and political coercion. And what they wanted to do was to kind of shake up the experience of reading literature such that the reader is not allowed to to settle in comfortably into a narrative world and instead to be sort of persistently, if not uncomfortably, aware of the conventions that go into the production of stories. And so to disrupt plot or to withdraw from plot or to sort of challenge it in any way on the part of modernists was to disrupt that immersive process and to make readers aware of the artificiality of language, the constructedness of our world. And so there was a direct kind of political kind of project there as well, in the sense that if one of the things that modernism wants to do is to disrupt immersion, it's in service of becoming less kind of duped by narratives of national belonging, heteronormativity, racial superiority, et cetera, et cetera, that they saw as being baked into 19th century plot. I should say, I should be very, very clear, though, that one of the things I really try to do in the book is to make sure that it doesn't seem that the modernists were necessarily right in the sense that there has been incredible work done by scholars of 19th century literature to show that the 19th century novel was far more complex than this, far more self-aware, far more sort of actually formally difficult than the way that it gets depicted in a lot of modernist scholarship and in a lot of modernist theory. But I do think that there's something to be said about the kind of like the grand narrative of what realism was and what what modernism went on to do. So one example that comes to mind, maybe you tell me if this is a good example or not, but a criticism of some books coming out of the 19th century might be, okay, you have a boy meets girl, they encounter lots of obstacles, will they get married, and then ultimately they do get married and there's a happy ending. But even if an author is to say, well, we know that that's not necessarily true, so I'm going to have you know, in in mind, they won't get married, or in mind, they'll get yeah. married, but then they'll be unhappy or something. And what what yeah. a critic might say of that is, well, it's still about marriage. You're still kind of privileging mm-hmm. an institution in a way that doesn't necessarily have to be there. It doesn't have to be built into a novel in order for yeah. the novel to reveal something important about the world. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And I actually think that 
I mean, I'm not a Austin scholar, but a lot of the criticism against the work of Jane Austen historically has been that even for all the ways that she sort of ironizes the process of marriage and the kind of assimilation of unruly female energies to the sort of heteronormative marriage plot is nevertheless trumped by the fact that marriage is the central kind of telos toward which all of the narrative energy is directed. I think this is one of the things that modernism is interested in challenging. Right. And so modernists were looking at the stories and saying, well, this one is about marriage and this one is about class structure or this one is about the church or the government or finding all of these ways and thinking, well, how do we how do we get around all of this? How do we and what were they looking for? Something that conveys what was important to an individual? Were they taking sort of a a humanist approach or what did they want to do instead? Yeah, that's a great question. I think Of course, it depends on the author. For Barnes, um, who was a lesbian writer, she was interested in sort of pointing up the the limits of heteronormative marriage. And so at the center of Nightwood is this woman named Robin Vogt, who jumps from relationship to relationship and um, ultimately doesn't really settle down with any one of her lovers. But the marriage and coupledom is not the sort of like the central kind of narrative motor of the of the novel and if anything it's a lesbian relationship between Nora Flood and Robin Vogt that if anything centers that novel it is it it is that lesbian relationship and but it's not at all tied to sort of conventions of marriage or an orientation toward the state at all right she eschews that entirely in the case of Nella Larson she is interested in showing the ways that the structures of Jim Crow, you know, right, so like post-emancipation U.S. and then eventually the emergence of Jim Crow, both de jure and de facto practice in the United States, foreclose opportunities for this young biracial woman to achieve any sense of sort of comfortable sex self-actualization in the style of something like the 19th century Bildungsroman. And so I would say that in the case of each modernist writer, what they're trying to do is sort of offer a position from which to see these fixtures of statehood and belonging that are central to the ways that they perceive 19th century fiction to kind of normalize what it is to be a liberal subject. They want to subject that to scrutiny and from different perspectives. Okay, let's take a quick break and come back with more from Pardis Dabashi. Hey, grown-ups! The Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his fishbowl podcast studio from the cat in the hat himself. And it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast. And those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes... The Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. 
sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Okay, Professor Debashi, we're back. So how does the modernist use of myth fit into what we've talked about so far? Yeah, I love this question because it's a way of understanding the persistence of plots in literary modernism. So one of the things that my book is interested in doing is, on the one hand, kind of resuscitating, but also challenging this grand narrative of literary modernism as the place where plot goes to die. And the mythical method, in particular, as it was developed particularly by T.S. Eliot and James Joyce, is one way of understanding how plot persists in modernism. So what I mean by the mythical method is the modernist turn to, let's say, epic schemas or epic plot structures to lend modern life the kind of meaning that many felt no longer held in modern experience, which is to say that if one of the sort of organizing senses about life under modern capitalism, especially in the city, was that human beings were living in this state of kind of social, political, and psychological fragmentation, then then myth was a way of lending some form of narrative order to what felt like a quite frightening absence of overarching systems of meaning. So in the case of Ulysses, for instance, you get you get the epi- an epic plot sort of grafted onto a single day in Dublin and or in The Wasteland, uh, which is not a novel, it's a poem, but in, in T.S. Eliot's Wasteland, you get the sort of the pervasion of fragmented modern scenes by tropes of Greek antiquity. So the persistence of myth or the pervasion of, of myth in modernism is a way of kind of coming back to forms of meaning-making, but also getting to meaning-making by by avoiding 19th century plotted structures. Mm-hmm. Right. And were they thinking about readers in doing that, or were they just focused on their art and thinking, well, uh, this in order for this to convey what I'm hoping that it will convey, it needs to have uh, some, it can't just be purely formless or it can't be chaotic. Uh-huh. It must have some kind of organizing principle. Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, this gets into bigger issues around the reception practices of modernism and to what extent did modernist writers really not care about how their work was going to be received? To what extent was modernism really, you know, what Theodore Adorno would call a kind of like autonomous art form? I would say that, I mean, in the case of Ulysses, I don't think Joyce is at all concerned with 
how his readers are going to experience the novel. Right. I do think that on the whole, modernists are, if they turn to myth, if they turn to sort of various narrative modes of narrative structuring that do or do not rely on the plot, it has far more to do with this kind of modernist injunction to make meaning in however kind of strained and ambivalent a way out of what felt increasingly like an unmanageably fragmented mode of life under modern capitalism and post-World War I. Right. And maybe as a, a creative stimulus in the case of Joyce to kind of say, well, I'm setting myself this project and look at how this book of the Odyssey will inspire this and kind of how each of the different episodes will give him new ideas. But also, you think maybe he looked at his overall project and thought, well, if I do a single day in the life of a single person, does that have enough significance to be a major novel? Does that have enough weight to compare yeah. with, you know, the the examples of the people who have come before me, but thinking that that grafting it onto this age-old, you know, epic poem might give it a little more gravitas. I, absolutely, Jack. I think that's absolutely right. I think there's a kind of legitimation mm, project mm-hmm. going on there, too. You know, if one of the kind of truisms we often say about modernism is that it makes the irrelevant relevant or um, it sort of it brings out the extraordinary and the ordinary. I think that the mythical method is absolutely one way of understanding modernism's attempt to argue for itself in a sense, like argue for its own significance by kind of attaching itself to ancient traditions that it considered as being the fundamental forebears of modern Western literature, absolutely. Right. So we've really only talked about half of your book's title, Losing the Plot, (laughs) and the modern novel. We haven't talked yet about film. So how does that fit into what you're looking at? Yeah, so the, the place of film in the book is really crucial in the sense that a lot of histories of the novel and relatively recent formalist interrogations of modernism have looked at the novel on its own terms. And I think that that's only telling part of the story because of how deeply aware and in touch modernist writers were with the emerging tradition of the cinema, mm-hmm. which took not just the U.S., but the world by storm. And you know, I'm actually not the first to argue this. I mean, this, is, this argument has been around for decades that the the classical Hollywood cinema in particular, which is like the emergence of systematized commercial narrative filmmaking in the U.S. that had global impact, global distribution, was in a way where 19th century middle class storytelling traveled to. And so... Nella Larson, my, the, the novelist I look at, Juna Barnes, Nella Larson, William Faulkner, and many, many others. I mean, many modernist authors as well were really fascinated by the movies. Yeah. James Joyce owned a movie theater, for instance. Right. Faulkner's father managed one in Oxford, Mississippi for a, for a brief period of time. And, and Juna Barnes was a film critic. And Nella Larson also went to the movies. Anyway, so the point is, these novelists were absolutely steeped in cinematic culture, 
not just any cinematic culture, but commercial narrative filmmaking. I mean, a lot of the scholarship that has come out before mine has focused on the importance of avant-garde cinema to modernist authors, but I'm far more interested in what happens when an experimental author goes and watches like a Garbo film. Yeah, right. Or, you know, like a popcorn movie. What is the, What are they seeing when they go there? What does that mean to them? What does it do to their fiction? And so what I'm interested in doing in the book is kind of, first of all, tracing the sort of institutional history of the transfer of 19th century storytelling and modes of storytelling from the novel to the classical Hollywood cinema, and then asking a sort of second order question, which is, what did this mean to these modernists? How did it influence their fiction? Right. Or did they feel like uh, it's almost like in the art world when photography kind of disrupted painting and a, a, yeah. a feeling that, well, we're not going to outdo this. I, we've been trying to yeah. make things more and more realistic, but boy, here you go. I, uh, yeah. yeah <laughs> and absolutely. so instead we can yeah. turn to something else. Well, what can painting do that photography can't do? And yeah. in this case, it might be, well, boy, you can't get much of a a, a more stripped down story that something that not only doesn't, you know, wallow around in somebody's thoughts, but it can't. Yeah. That's right. That's absolutely right. We get yes. the surfaces and we get what happens to that person and and we get, you know, the whole story can be told in in kind of in terms of actors and plot. <laughs> that's absolutely yes, that is that's absolutely right. And in a way, I mean, in general, because I work so systematically across literature and film and really do my best to kind of get deep into the weeds of the, of the traditions and the scholarship of, of both of these disciplines, I tend to be averse to claims of the, cine- the quote-unquote cinematic quality of certain novels or vice versa. But if I were to have to say, of the three authors I look at, Juna Barnes, Nella Larson, and William Faulkner, the person whose who's literature is the most cinematic, I would say, is Juna Barnes, because precisely of the way that she's interested in characters as surfaces, right? She's interested in sort of lifting our consciousness to the surface of the page in a way that is kind of relentless. And that's how, exactly as you said, film is tied to the world of objects. It's it's tied to the physical world and of necessity, right? That's what I would say about that. So, and I think that the the relationship that I'm I'm trying to draw out in the book is that modernists are going to the movies, classical Hollywood movies, and in the case of Faulkner, their narrative precursors, when a sort of earlier, uh, less institutionalized form, and seeing on display in this really virtuosic expertly executed way, seamless narrative storytelling. Mm. And my suggestion is that they are kind of reminded um, or confronted anew with the intense affective power of plot and plotting. You've just anticipated my, my next question, which is we... Uh, in in looking back at your title, it's film and feeling in the modern novel, and I was going to ask how feeling fits in. Yeah, it's really important for 
my argument in the sense that, first of all, what I was trying to get at earlier and what I try to make very explicit in the, at least in the introduction of my book, is that modernist authors are kind of mourning what realism, not necessarily what the realist novel actually did, but what it felt like it did once it was kind of channeled through the shibboleth of Hollywood fantasy. And so Hollywood is extraordinarily good at sort of conjuring desire, right? Conjuring feeling. It's extremely good as a kind of coercive political tool because of how easily it can get us to want certain things that we might, in less, let's say, centrally heightened states, recognize as not being necessarily good for us or good for society at large, uh, which is to say that Hollywood is very good at seducing us. Mm. And it's that kind of seductive energy that film scholars have been right to kind of question for a really long time to say, well, Hollywood is a lot more complicated than that. And that's absolutely true. Hollywood is definitely more complicated than that. However, for all the ways that Hollywood can be critical of itself, and I'm talking here of the classical Hollywood cinema, for all the ways that it can be critical of itself, it's nevertheless the case that we we do get wrapped up in the Hollywood ending. We do want to see the lovers get together. We do want to see the kind of the coming of the story to fruition. And I want to suggest that these modernist authors were no different from us in the sense that, you know, they too were sort of caught up in the narrative pleasures of classical Hollywood cinema. And so it's my interest in feeling is in the power of feeling to kind of undo our political commitments. And I want to not be skeptical of that, as in, I don't want to be dismissive of that. I want to study it and understand its implications. So I don't know if this is moving ahead too far in what we know about film and literature, uh, because I'm not sure how developed the films were by the for these yeah. authors that you were looking at. But it almost seems like, you know, film today can be so... Uh, powerful in terms of telling stories just by, you know, you have the music and you have the acting yeah. and you have the costumes or you have, you know, you you can get a lot of sentiment and a lot of feeling out of things that novelists don't necessarily have in their toolbox. And That's right. so I'm wondering if, if modern modernists were trying to kind of save the novel in a way to say, well, there's other things that novels can do that we don't have to give over storytelling completely to the film industry, yeah. even though this is what everybody is running out to to uh, see. And, and there seems to be no end in sight to how influential this form is going to be. Yeah, that's absolutely right. Well, I'll say a couple of things. I think in in my book, what I'm trying to do is to track what I see as a kind of again, like a mournful, wistful mm. relationship that modernist novelists have toward the plot-cranking, you know, sentiment, 
creating factory of of the possible Hollywood film industry. In a way, there's a kind of, you know, the way that I put it in the book is that these modernists are sort of coming to miss what plot can do. And, and so that what we see in these novels is a kind of persistent tension between, on the one hand, a recognition of the modernist mandate to relinquish the kind of the social and psychic and formal promises of 19th century plot as they're also longingly reaching for them. But at the same time, there is a really rich body of scholarship out there that wants to suggest a kind of more antagonistic, if not competitive, uh, relationship between uh, modernist writers and the and the cinema, generally speaking, because precisely of how uh, powerful culturally, technologically, socially, the film industry was relative to the publishing industry, and especially the modernist publishing industry. Absolutely. Right. Does this track at all a feeling that I've often heard from writers who kind of one of the things they'll miss about the 19th century novel is the omniscient narrator. And they'll say, you know, this really yeah. isn't available to us anymore because we're aware that it's, you know, just one person's point of view and that there are many other points of view that are valid and there is no omniscience because, you know, it's it's got all of these assumptions baked into it and all of these biases and, and prejudices yeah. and so on. And so, it, but, it, and yet at the same time, it's sort of a feeling of, but that was a really nice way to be able to tell a story or to to, to present a book. It was a yeah. great tool and it was a great, it had a great impact on readers and so on. And so yeah. you sort of feel like, well, what's going to replace it? Can we replace it with anything that's as good or what does it mean for us that we can't? Yeah. Yeah. Do you mean in the contemporary context? Yeah, I, I hear it from contemporaries, but I'm guessing that there was also some of that probably coming already in with the modernists as they in were the kind yeah, of starting absolutely. to yeah right this is actually precisely part of my point which is on the one hand these modernists recognize that in order to kind of make it new in Ezra Pound's words what literature needed to do was to abandon or at least withdraw from certain fixtures of 19th century storytelling that they considered to be associated with various kinds of political, social, economic constraints and mm. conservatism, right? So they understood that as being central to the modernist project. And at the same time, they nevertheless recognized that doing that Withdrawing from those conventions in that way is painful, right? It's painful because they recognize that living without these kinds of formal, this kind of formal architecture that kind of secured narrative meaning gave a sense of reassuring teleology is extremely difficult. This is Walter Benjamin, who's a major theorist of the early 20th century. And um, a theorist of narrative form, among other things, he understood this more than anyone else, probably. He said that we turn to 19th century novels to sort of, you know, that he uses the metaphor of a fire 
in, in the hearse, like we tur- we turn to 19th century novels to sort of warm ourselves uh, in order to make ourselves feel better. Yeah, right. It, it also reminds me of myself as an undergrad and reading Nietzsche for the first time and, <laughs> and going into my professor's, is kind of embarrassing, but I went into my professor's office hours and said, you know, he keeps talking about the abyss and how he will <laughs> stare into the abyss. Yeah. What is the, where is the abyss? What is he talking about? What is, what does that mean? And the explanation yeah. that came back was, well, he's saying, if you remove all of the things that have stitched society together and all of the institutions people are familiar with and, and have lived with for centuries, if you remove all of those, what's going to be left? And what are people yeah. going, how are they going to accept that or deal with it? Or what's it going to mean for people who, and for society as a whole, to not have those things? And yeah. it sounds like in an artistic sense, this is what we're talking about with the modernists. Absolutely. And I, and I think that, first of all, I would be, I, I don't envy your professor for having a terrible conversation to have to have. But, but yeah, I mean, it's true. And I think that in this way, modernist literature, and it's really complex interrogations of plot, in many ways, anticipate what we're experiencing now, which is similarly a sense of, you know, what's next? The earth is basically on fire and there's a sense of increased chaos and atomization and you know binarizing of political life and what exactly is it that holds us all together and so wouldn't it be nice from a certain perspective it's like wouldn't it be nice if we had narratives to make us feel better about where we're at, but that is feeling more than ever, even more than maybe the the modernist period, just kind of self-delusion. The book is called Losing the Plot, Film and Feeling in the Modern Novel. Pardis Dabashi, thank you so much for joining me on the History of Literature. Thank you so much. And finally today, author Anne Enright. After we talked about her childhood in Ireland, her television and writing careers, her views of poetry, and her novel, The Wren, the Wren, I asked her this special question. Okay, joining me now is the novelist Anne Enright, whose recent novel, The Wren, the Wren, deals with the inheritance of trauma, wonder, and love across three generations of women. And this question comes from a listener who asks, what do you want your last book to be? This will be the last book you will ever read. You can either choose one that exists or describe one that has not yet been written. You're really not going to like my answer, all right? Mm, Okay. (laughs) You're not going to like my answer. Uh, You know, if you spend uh, an amount of time among the elderly and the very elderly, you realize that you forget so much in life. You might as well, in your last days, read your own book. Uh-huh. So I'm looking forward to reading my book, The Wren, The Wren, and saying, I don't know if this, well, actually, that bit's <laughs> quite good. I'm being perpetually surprised by what's on the page. When did your first novel come out? 
1991, I think, 1991. Okay. So do you think that if you picked it up now, there would be things in there that surprised you? Or have you read it enough and had to discuss it enough and so on along the way that it would it would still feel like you knew every single word in it? Well, that's a very good question, because that was an under-discussed book, my first novel. I don't think I did an interview. I think I would be surprised yeah. by the contents. Yeah, right. Are you tempted to to give it a read no. or no? Yeah. No. yeah. Well, maybe. I mean, there's two things that happen when you read old work. One is you open the page and you say, God, I used to be able to write. What's happened? <laughs> <laughs> And that, especially with work that you thought was terrible at the time. But yeah. I'm just, I, I don't mind. The book is written in a particular year of your life at a mm. particular time in the world. And I, I wouldn't want it altered necessarily. Yeah. But I don't know if I'd want to read it again. You make it sound like you kind of can't win. That if it's, I'm sure if you find it to be not very good, you'll be disappointed. <laughs> but if you find it good, you'll you'll either think, why don't I write like that anymore? Or you'll feel like maybe I should have written more than I did. Or it, it, you'll have a negative response to it being good. That lose-lose, Jack, is called being Irish, okay? <laughs> the win-win is called being American. <laughs> right. If you think it's not good, then you think, well, thank goodness I got so much better. And if it's and if it's good, you think, look how great I was, even from this early age. Well, it, I, I have to say, it's not a bad life taken over, you know, uh, with an overview of decades. It's not a bad life, but the the process can be excruciating in, in its along the way. Okay, and and right, thank you so much for joining me on the history of literature. Thank you. Okay, there we go. That's going to do it for this episode of the History of Literature. My thanks to Anne Enright for that little cameo, and my thanks to Pardis Debashi. Of course, her book is available all over the place, wherever you get your books. We've got some good episodes coming up. Let's see, Wordsworth and Coleridge are on the horizon, and a philosophical filmmaker, and Byron's letters, and a Czech manuscript hoax. China's presence in African literature. That's an interesting one. And Machiavelli is on the horizon too. Wow. So please do quite a horizon. So please do subscribe or follow and tell all your amici about those. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening and we'll see you next time. <laughs>